Today, we're going to have a conversation with Thomas Zormino, Houston resident and tech extraordinaire. Maybe, maybe extraordinaire is um, too, too soft a term. Maybe we should use something a bit weightier to explain the gravitas and expertise of Thomas. But Thomas, would you tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? Well, I'm a Houston native, uh, born in 75. I uh, grew up, I guess the first school I went to uh, was called Dodson Montessori. Uh, so I was never really in my home schools. I was always off at a magnet school. Um, middle school, Burbank Vanguard, and high school was the uh, law, high school for law enforcement and criminal justice. Um, went there wanting to be a lawyer, came out wanting to become a teacher. It was kind of weird. Um, did some college here and there. All in all, I have five different colleges in my belt, uh, no degrees. Um, have had a, a collection of different professions. Um, currently, I am, I guess you would say a validation specialist or a validation manager uh, for SSL.com. We do digital authentication, uh, code signing certificates, document signing certificates, certificates for websites. If you ever buy anything online and you see that lock uh, to show that you're really connected to Amazon or whatever, we sell those. Not to Amazon, but you know, we sell those. To people. To so people validation is something that lots of people like and need, but you're talking about something that's a bit more specialized. I'm talking about proving that you really are whom you say you are. You know, like if you came to me looking for a document signing certificate, uh, you'd have to give me some of your IDs, government issued photo ID with your address on it. Um, you have to prove where you work. I'd call the U of H, or I'd call the uh, city of West Columbia, ask them about you. Um, we'd do a little Zoom interview where you would show me your ID, prove to me that you really have a physical ID, that you really are that person. I'd have to use my own cognizance to determine that the picture looks like you, you know, uh, the name matches, and then you get your certificate. Excellent. So this is something geared towards vendors to ensure that the supplier and purchaser are engaged in a legitimate enterprise. And, and so there's an element of fraud protection here? It's an element of fraud protection, element of identity protection. Um, you know, with your document signing certificate, you can prove that you signed something as opposed to someone else signing it for you. Or, you know, the person who you're in a contract with can prove that you signed it. And what, what's the value of this uh, authenticity? Is this something purely for a digital marketplace? Is this something in a, an environment where transactions are conducted and occurring without uh, ever having an in-person meeting? Or is this something uh, that offers governments or financial transactions an additional layer or, or threshold of, of improved sort of authenticity? Yes to both. Yes to okay. both. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, people use it from like notaries to like, you know, if you wanted to sign your um, contract for your gym, you could use your document signing certificate, digital certificate. Um, pay your taxes, you can you know, sign it with a digital certificate. Um, we were in a process to actually do uh, legal IDs for, a, uh, for an island nation, but that fell through, you know, business happens. Um, but yeah, also, uh, like I mentioned, code signing certificates for companies. If you're a developer, you write some code, you want to prove that that code is yours. Uh, you want to let your customers know that that code has not been modified since you published it. Uh, that's what the certificate is for. So it's, it's about trust. We're about building trust, sharing trust across the internet. Um, 
I don't know if you remember it, but a while back, you know, in the heydays, 90s or whatever, there was this cartoon, a comic that had two dogs in front of a PC computer, they're typing, and one dog says to the other dog, you know, the best thing about the internet is nobody knows you're a dog. Well, we're here to prove if you're a dog or not. And, and that is interesting because had you been a lawyer, you might have been uh, able to uh, participate in Zoom meetings and assure the court that you were not, not a cat. I'm yes. not a cat. <laughs> So, so that's always good as well. And, and I, I, I mean, some of the things that we talk about in my courses are due diligence. That is what you're talking about with the facial identification, Correct. at least to a certain standard or threshold of reasonability, right? Where you're saying, I may not have the um, optical uh, sort of pupil verification or fingerprint identification uh, software or, or the hardware, handy that they have for clear systems at the airport or global entry or any of those systems, but I can otherwise exercise a reasonable level of care. What level of training did you have to go through to, uh, at least beyond the technical skills, identify that, for example, you're not so colorblind that when someone appears on your screen, you're going to identify someone incorrectly or that you, right. you can actually do this? Was there training? Is there some testing? So as far as I know, there's not like a specific degree plan or anything like that. Um, there's not even, you know, credentials testing for this type of job. Um, there is an industry called the uh, CAV form, the CAB form, stands for Certificate Authority Browser Form. And it's a collection of manufacturers, developers uh, come together to like map out the, uh, the guidelines of TLS certificates, uh, website certificates, document science certificates, um, S-MIME, you know, for sending emails. Uh, so we have to participate in that. Um, based on those regulations, there are audits that like will check to see if your company has the correct servers, you know, the correct uh, protection on those servers, backup capabilities for power, um, data storage, of course. Um, and then as part of our yearly training, we have to go through training Again, though, it's training that we develop ourselves. Um, in a sense, it's kind of like the Wild West still, but we're, you know, like the Wild West, we're bringing it into the future. You know, you have to like map out the territory, turn that territory into a state, and that state joins the union, you know. Um, that, that's pretty much where we are. We're, we're developing the rules that will guide us into the future. Very nice. And within this, so this is clearly a growth industry. This is something, particularly as we have digital reliance, we saw with, um, not, with the pandemic, uh, I guess on a global level, we, we saw COVID-19 come through and improve our understanding and appreciation of the capacity of remote infrastructure, of uh, virtual meetings, and then also then recognition of the time savings of the uh, efficiencies that can be created through these remote virtual environments. And so then creating a further need for your services. It, it, do you see your, or have you seen over time your suite of staff grow? Yes, um, when I joined the company, I was the third employee. Now we have probably about 35, 40 employees. Uh, that's in the course of seven years that I've been now with the company. Uh, so it's a slow growth, but it's a steady growth. And it seems to be almost exponential. Uh, we're looking for new developers, of course, to like build the tools that we use, validation specialists. In, in, in the time that it's taken me to reach the level of knowledge, you know, it, it's, it's not a very 
it, I mean, it's not overly complex, but it's not easy either. You know, you definitely have to study. You definitely have to pay attention to the intricacies of the rules, uh, your data sources. Uh, you have to make sure that all the information is a certain age. But I, I forgot what this question was going on. Well, no, and you know that's one of the fun things because, of course, all these these technology talks trigger recollections of the former Texas Comptroller and the release of data. And then, of course, my father and I have this lifetime uh, identity protection payment from the Office of Personal Management because federal files were hacked by uh, China. Uh, really? In, right. Uh, and so federal, if you were a federal employee and you, were, you received this identity protection service um, indefinitely, I still get alerts. And it's, and it's fascinating to see the alerts they give me as well, though, because there are credit alerts um, if you spend a certain amount or um, things more financially based, uh, typically seen with the identity protection protection services, where um, you don't want people using your finances to fund their lifestyle choices. But concurrently, I'll get alerts about um, people with certain criminal histories moving into the neighborhood according to the address that they have on file. So, I mean, there's there there's a lot of potential, and you think wow, how does, Texas is now the ninth largest economy in the world, but maybe, you know, at the time it wasn't that big, but Texas always been big. And, and then U.S. federal government getting hacked. And so you think about the needs and the dangers of uh, digital protection. And then concurrently, uh, I also, when you mentioned like databases, I think about blockchain and, I, and how people don't realize uh, that there's like an environmental uh, sort of correlation in these ideas about the energy usage right. associated with storing data and cooling servers. And so there's the hardware and the software, but there's this intersection that I think many people miss. And that's one of the cool things about teaching and supply cycle is it touches everything. In your multiple educational experiences, did you only study pedagogical things or did you uh, sort of find that there were other subjects that you studied, other majors that you were initially pursuing that you've now been able to incorporate in your work? To be honest, in school, in college at least, I was studying women and uh, partying. And so that's kind of why I didn't finish. Um, through the blessings of God and, and uh, genetics, I seem to have an intellect that allowed me to kind of breeze through things. And um, when I realized that college wasn't for me, I kind of fell into computer repair, um, doing technical support on the phone, whatnot, computer chat support. Uh, that led into other like networking jobs, which led into other you know web-based jobs, uh, which led me to where I am now. And and, and but of course, then so studying women and partying, you're analyzing people. Yes. And so then you are still building some soft skills that may be associated with at least beyond the social security number or other personally identifying information, other tactics or tools or techniques that might allow you to. Uh, sort of add value beyond the person who has lived in a homogeneous society and has not studied um, the myriad of women that you... You know, uh, <laughs> I, for a while I was a bouncer at a bar. And so you get to um, understand the body techniques, the, the language that is unspoken when someone is trying to pass you a bad ID or to, you know, prove that they're not too drunk for another beer. Um, so yeah, you're right. These soft skills uh, do generally come in into play uh, in the everyday life. You know, uh, when dealing with people, even just as a as a bouncer dealing with people to like 
politely ask them to do what you want so it doesn't escalate, you know, or something is escalating to talk it down. Uh, you can take that into financial disputes, someone saying that they want a refund or that this didn't work in the way that they wanted it, um, give me three more to make me feel better, you know. Uh, dealing with people, th that experience comes from life, from experience, you're right. I don't know if you can always teach that in a class. Uh, maybe you can, you're a great teacher, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had to learn through experience. And one of the things that we we've, have covered in, in other candid conversations is this idea that no one's race or journey is exactly like anyone else's. And so for some people, for me, you know, I, I'm obviously a member of the Silverfish Society. I like paper. So every additional certificate I get, but I don't always get to your point, the value or the knowledge that is at least uh, perpetuated or, or uh, announced on that certificate. So I then have this uh, ethical training in government <laughs> it's a certificate and I'm like ah, how ethical am I I don't know I'm, you know I'm 87 percent ethical according to the state training portal so I'm I'm not quite there the you go. Fault, it's a B plus right yeah. right I'm, above I'm, average right I'm, I'm doing something so that's that's an interesting journey and and then allowing people that freedom to see a, a non-linear path or a um, a path that is not along the prescribed direction of society as a satisfying and fulfilling career path. And so it sounds like you found something where you were able to contribute, where you're able to pay your bills exactly. and, and still not have to get XYZ credential, the law license, the CPA to validate your capacity and competence. No, I'm not gonna tell you it was an easy path you know, there's, uh, there were times when I was homeless, times when I just didn't pay rent, you know, the, had to get kicked out of my apartment. Um, but then there are other times when it was a, it's a blessing, you know. Uh, you somehow get that freelance job that gives you enough money to take six months off. You know, you have the time to go on that trip while everybody else is going to work. Or um, you just have time to, you know, make money and, and take a vacation while everybody else is in college. You know, um, it was, it was, I mean, it's, it's not a lot now, but at the time, uh, you know, being the first person to get a $40,000 job while everybody else is still in college or, you know, working seven or $8 jobs, uh, that felt cool. Now, on, on the flip side, there are other friends of mine, you know, who follow different paths who are now like, you know, established lawyers making six figures. I'm not doing that, but I'm, I'm not wanting, so. Right. And, I, and, I, and then you can't judge it all on, on money. You know, you, mm -hmm. there's, there's a happiness level. There's a, when I was a child, I wanted to be a ditch digger because you go, you dig a ditch and then you're done. You go home, the job's over. There are a lot of people that uh, take their jobs home with them. They work throughout the night. They pull out their hair. They get too much stress. That's not me. Um, I'll work, you know, maybe I'll do a little bit more 50 hours a week instead of 40, but um, there, there has to be a balance between life and a paycheck because no matter how big the paycheck is, if you're not living life, it's not enough. And I struggle with that because I, I oftentimes find teaching where I have sort of a, a five hour requirement per week. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially a five hour work week. And <laughs> I, I, I contrast that with my successful friends who are partners at law firms who earn three, five times what I do. Mm -hmm. And I think, wow, they're working on Saturdays and Sundays. 
And then uh, if you watch me, I've got my laptop out, laptop, laptop out on Saturdays and Sundays at midnight, uh, answering student emails, answering students. So I'm then when I think about it, wow, for the amount of work, I am doing just as much as for my friends, but I'm doing it on my terms. I'm not on a client or a firm schedule. I'm, I'm answering student emails as the need arises and as I determine it, and also the satisfaction of what it is that I'm doing. And so then the email for the student success is much less taxing, I think, on a certain level than uh, grinding out uh, a bunch of uh, adjusted sort of filings for a large corporation to um, further stick it to their employees. And so thinking about how, how that differentiation works in my own life and where I, for the amount of time, I may as well be at a firm making three to five times as much, but for the quality of the work and for the constituents that I'm serving, the stakeholders, there's a certain valuation. How do you determine value in your life? So for a time I worked for Texas Children's Hospital and the idea that I was supporting doctors who were supporting kids who were sick made me feel better about myself. Um, there's definitely a joy that comes from giving back to society in some way, shape or form. And I'm not gonna lie, sometimes you do have to talk yourself into seeing that joy in what you're doing, you know? Um, from one point of view, I could just be working right now to make myself money, but I'm also working to make the internet more trustworthy, to make individuals uh, be able to communicate with each other in a better way. And in that sense, it's, uh, it's fulfilling. You mentioned the ditch digger too. One of the things that I immediately thought about because I am, I'm not a person who needs to necessarily complete a task. And that's one of the joys of teaching is that it's a continuous project. It's a continuous improvement project for you, for your students, for your classroom environment. And the ditch, once it's dug, it's complete. Yes. But it's also tangible. And so one of the things that you're doing, much like someone who builds a bridge or a building, a mason or a carpenter, you're providing something that you can look at and more tangibly see than perhaps me helping a student who's struggling earn a B. And then 10 years from now, I don't know whether that B helped them get into a better graduate school, um, help them get a better job, help their self-esteem. I don't know if it saved right. them from a suicide feeling, a, a sense of hopelessness. I just know I did my part to give them a B, unlike a ditch or a bridge where you say, someone's driving on this, it hasn't collapsed, I did a good thing. So is, is there some of that tangible? In a way, I mean, it's not as tangible as a ditch. Uh, basically it's digital certificates, you know, so it's zeros and ones on a computer, but you do get that fulfillment of knowing that that order is complete, that um, for certain types of certificates that you put it on a token and mail them a physical token, you know, um, I, I will, mail off anywhere between 20 to 50 packages a week uh, to different people uh, of completed items. And so taking that bundle of you know 10 items per day to UPS uh, to drop it off is, is kind of um, fulfilling. You know, you're right. It, it, it is driving over the bridge, uh, albeit a, a bridge of trust as opposed to a bridge of uh, industrial uh, infrastructure. If someone was studying supply chain management or, or general business and they thought they wanted to participate 
in this area of building digital trust, what are some of the jobs, job titles, job roles that that individual would look for after completing the degree? You'd want to look into um, auditor roles, uh, validation specialists, uh, evidence collection, um, anything where you have a criteria, um, you know, just a set of rules, and you're trying to make sure that these items fit into those roles. It's the interpretation of, you know, the 50-page document of, uh, of rules um, into the real world, and then also explaining that to other people. You know, a customer comes to me and says, I have this company, I'd like a certificate for my company. I say to that person, your company was established yesterday, so I need X, Y, and Z information about you yourself to prove to the potential customers, the relying party, uh, that you're not scamming them. You know, so th that kind of plays into it. You, know, you have to be able to, to take these, this knowledge, uh, this, this refined set of rules, and then massage it into the real world, which doesn't always fit. You know? That's a, one of the biggest challenges I ran into, and, I, and I, I've thought sometimes because superintendent contracts are rather lucrative. I've worked on a few. Uh, and so they make uh, quite a bit more than college professors. Um, the ones that I've done, if they're making less than I am, they are messing up at life. Um, I will tell them that. <laughs> and they need to call me for contract review. Um, Cause I, I definitely worked on one for 186,000 with a car allowance, with a cell phone, anyway. So I can do that. Yeah, yeah I, it's, a, it's, it's pretty lucrative. And you think, well, okay, why not do K-12 and, and take that path? And I think there are a few factors that we've sort of addressed here where not only the individually assessing your journey, individually assessing what provides value to you, individually assessing um, what gives you satisfaction, but then that external rule structure where I run my classroom and I can look at other professors um, sort of down my nose and say, wow, you are not engaged. Um, you do not use the tools that we have. We have a number of resources at the university to improve our pedagogy and andragogy and I avail myself of all of them, not just for the Silverfish Society and the certificates, but also to improve my craft. And one of the things that you find in K-12 is, of course, the standardized testing and this uh, sort of molding where we want one size to fit all. And we say, can you, can you solve this problem? And I joked with my students early on before I was worried uh, about, about uh, our transitions in our, in our woke culture. But I used to, I used to joke with my students that if I wanted to kill them, I'd set the room on fire and give them multiple choice quiz where all the answers were essentially sit in your seat, stand in a corner, um, cry, and they would never leave the room. They would never say, I'm not going to sit here and to finish this test. The room is on fire. I think we have uh, to a lot of, by a lot of measures, we have reduced the critical thinking capacity of our society. And so what do you think not necessarily on a social, sociological sense, but in your profession and in your experience, what are some of the ways that you have been able to break out of, hey, we're checking one, two, and three, we also should check four. Or if then, uh, if this person comes in who started their business yesterday, I will have a, I will individually assess a different measure than the person who comes in with a 30-year established business. So, um something kind of related to this is that uh, recently we've had a few uh, new hires come in who are very good at following the exact rules, but life doesn't always come in that, that you know, same pattern. And uh, for instance, when verifying the address of someone, 
they would uh, get the, uh, the five plus four, the, the nine digit uh, zip code, excuse me. And they're asking someone, what is your business address? They get the business address and they give the, the five numbered uh, zip code. And then they're like, well, what about the other four? And, and to them, if you don't say those extra four, then the entire answer is incorrect and it should fail and you would not get your certificate. Uh, it's, it's, it's unorthodox thinking, uh, you know, outside the box, whatever, that's kind of needed in all facets of life. You, you definitely want to know when to stay in the lanes, when to sit down and take your test, but you have to look around and realize that smell is smoke, that bright flame or that bright light is fire. Those aren't good things. And, you know, you have to deviate from the set plan occasionally. And it's those people that can deviate, you know, from a set plan who can jump off the train before it crashes into the wall or, or you know, uh, buy the stock that looks really cheap right now and everybody thinks it's going to tank, but then shoots up. You know, it's, it's taking a risk, but also knowing when to take a risk. And that's just through experience. That's through the ability to... Uh, I guess thank for yourself. You, you, you have to understand what the rules are, but then you have to understand if not when to break them, but when to uh, not necessarily follow them. Right, and, and one of the things, of course, this doesn't work for juries. There's been a, a recent uh, fine assessed to a juror who was looking online about <laughs> some litigants in a case. So there are rules where there will be criminal or civil penalties, but to your point about the address, are these individuals aware that for most uh, records that are public for property records, you could type in the business name or go to the secretary of state's office and find that address with the agent of record and validate it through other means. You don't need Westlaw or LexisNexis necessarily to find a government or, or third party that is affirmation of work you're already doing. And, and I wonder, other than life experience, though, are there books that you've read that, that really awakened your sense of, wow, oh. we, we, are, we are getting dumb, let's fix this, or um, certain, you know, certain music that you find sort of heightens your, your focus while you work? I wouldn't know what to think right now. I mean, when, when you mentioned books that I read, for whatever reason, Stranger in a Strange Land popped into my head, and I don't exactly know why that did, uh, but uh, I guess it's, it's about, um, maybe I do know. I don't know if you've read that uh, by, by Heinlein. It's, it's a story about a man who comes from Mars, uh, who comes to Earth and interacts with people in a certain way. And it's not the way that people are used to interacting with him, but they learn that once they start to interact with him in a way that he's interacting with them, new worlds of possibility are opened up to them. Um, I, I think what life is about that. Did, the education that you receive, K-12, plus four, plus three, whatever you want to get, you know, letters after your name, um, you don't stop learning once you get that piece of paper in your hand. You don't stop learning, or rather you shouldn't stop learning when you get that piece of paper. You shouldn't stop learning after you step off the stage. That's, that's just a booster rocket. Now you're in space. Now you have to go to the moon. You know, you have to get yourself there the, the rest of the way. Right. And, and Highline is, is definitely one of the authors that I, I enjoy reading. Uh, the Starship Trooper book is not at all like the movie. <laughs> not at all, no. Um, <laughs> um, and so it's, I, I find science fiction many times has either alluded to something that then became 
a reality, whether it be the the communicators on Star Wars, mm-hmm. our Star Trek that that then became, you know, we have these flip phones that, that do the same thing. Seriously, uh, this, is a, this is basically a tricorder. Right, right, yeah. right. I'm, I can assess my health and, and wellness. Yes. I can do all these what things. What temperature is it? Yeah. Right, and and so I did. I do find, and I encourage my students to look at science fiction, not necessarily fantasy, um, maybe maybe the, the force of Star Wars is a little different than, than Star Trek and the idea of rearranging molecules where where matter can be neither created nor destroyed. And so this energy is always with us, right? And I argue um, that, that maybe that's what heaven is, right? Is that we, our energy just goes back in. Um, and so, so the science fiction has, has always challenged my critical thinking and my assessment of, wow, there are two options. What is a third or fourth option? And I struggle sometimes with, with my students to get them to accept, for example, that consequences, while popularly we, we perceive of them only in the negative, they can be positive. If you clean your room, a positive consequence could be ice cream. Now, not cleaning your room, negative consequence could be a butt beating, right. but, but there can be positive consequences. Consequences in and of themselves are neutral. Uh, and so we, we talk about biases or prejudices and people, no, I don't have any of those. And you think, wow, when you see a vegetable trade, you immediately go for the broccoli or the cauliflower. If you go for the cauliflower, I think you're sick. Just throwing that out there, but but we have these unconscious biases and prejudices, and then accepting them. And to your point, that continuous learning outside of the classroom, even after the actual uh, sort of check mark has been given, m- much of that is where we really add the value. So I like to read before I go on a trip uh, a lot of the technical information about a city or or country, so that I have the vernacular, I have the language to uh, sort of, in my mind, conceptualize what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing. In technology, there are a number of languages that you all use. Uh, and so I, I think it's, it's a fitting uh, comparison to say, okay, once I've studied the formal aspects, then I actually can increase the knowledge or value by applying it. Uh, again, beyond the books, beyond the, 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 the sort of experiences, what are some things that, that you found that people should do? Is travel something that people should do? Is working different jobs? Working uh, different so. jobs, um, working with people that you don't know. Um, I spent a lot of my 20s and early 30s uh, in improv bands, um, just making wild jazz music, uh, making uh, strange art with people, uh, going to... Uh, I guess they're called burns, like a cliffside, Burning Man, these, these art festivals where people come, they build something to show other people. Uh, you walk around, there's music, there's you know, lights, drugs, nakedness, but it's just, it's the interaction. It's, it's pure interaction with people. Um, it's, it's reaching your boundaries and stepping beyond them and then realizing that your boundaries were set by you, not by the universe, that, uh, you know, you want to climb that mountain. The only reason you haven't is because you are scared of it, you know? Um, and that's not to say that everybody can climb a mountain, you know, uh, the, I, I don't want to get like lost into like physical capabilities and whatnot, but there, there's always something that you want to do or that you don't even know that you want to do, that you should just try it. Um, Definitely the college years for me, you know, 19 to the early 20s, a lot of experimentation with just different 
going to a different club that you've never been to before, experiencing a different movie. Um, you have a friend who likes this weird food, try it. Today I ate sushi for the first time. I've never really eaten sushi. Um, wasn't bad, you know? I, I used to have an aversion to it, but that aversion was my aversion. It wasn't, that didn't like the taste. All the tastes were cool. You know, it's not like I'm allergic to fish. Just, you, you have to step outside of your own personal box because for the most part, ultimately, you're the one creating that box. And um, yeah, you know, you can, you can go where you want to. Yeah, I, and I, you know, I think sometimes negative experiences, you mentioned uh, some of the things that my, my students deal with, uh, particularly as immigrant uh, or first-gen uh, students without a large family support network that, mm -hmm. that I enjoy, even as a first-gen on my mother's side, at least I, I have uh, several generations in country and things like that. Um, to rely on that they did not. And so these adversity, um, the, the lessons of adversity, I also think can't be overstated when, you know, I think back to this time I, I flew to Japan um, and, and we talked a little bit about mine and my sister's work in Japan. And um, I stopped in LAX, I got something with my credit card and I got to Japan and I went to a big dinner with lots of fancy people and my card was declined. Well, because of the time zones, this is back in the day, no person was on the phone. And so I actually had to ask an intern to pay for the dinner. So I was able to negotiate that situation um, and, and essentially find a solution. Some of which was convincing someone that I would A, pay them back that I didn't know well, right. B, that I did have money. <laughs> it just wasn't accessible to me. And the next day I, I talked with the folks at uh, the, the credit card company and they um, reminded me to um, let them know when I left the country. And so fast forward 20 years, uh, a few weeks ago, I was in Mexico and um, someone said, hey, did you call the credit card company? I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do that. And I didn't. And so I get to the hotel and I have the exact experience, but the technology has changed to where I was able to step to the side, um, call their 24-hour hotline and uh, address the situation and then do an authenticating call, uh, a, a few things. But also, so side note with, with this recent experience, they needed a second sort of form of authentication. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to call the home number. So fortunately, my father was at his house to answer this landline to tell them, yes, uh, this is my obnoxious son who is a deadbeat. Uh, he, you know, he, he, he is in Mexico with my money and just, just get it done because he will, he will pay it or I will. And so these experiences, though, you think, well, A, I didn't learn my lesson from 20 years ago. <laughs> and B, um, learning how to navigate that adversity without panicking, without... Um, That's a big thing, without panicking. You have to, you know, take a breath and realize it's not the end of the world, whatever it is, and uh, you'll, you will find an answer, yeah. And, and then what are, what are some of the mechanisms that you used over time to sort of build that confidence in yourself to say, wow, I'm not making my rent for the month. I mean, did you just sort of demonize the landlord and say, you know, this is, this is a, an evil person who's getting my money, <laughs> no, no, no. so they don't the, deserve the it anyway. The landlord I didn't pay a lot of money to, um, he was a great guy. I mean, he, he was an older gentleman, um, you know, You'd probably call him a boomer nowadays, uh, but uh, he he wasn't an evil man. It wasn't like I was trying to stick it to him or anything like that. 
Uh, it's just a matter of him being a bit too easygoing and too, too gracious to us and us taking advantage of that generosity. Um, eventually, of course, it fell apart. You know, you can only push something so long before it breaks. Uh, you can only, you know, swim too long before your arms get tired. Um, and, and then you're in the deep water and you're gonna drown. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, you, you kind of live life, I kind of live life, I guess, uh, with a fake it till you make it attitude sometimes. And sometimes that's the difference. Um, when I was a kid, there was this band called U2. I don't know if they're still popular now, but I, I heard stories. <laughs> they are at my house. <laughs> I ran into Bono in the Russell Senate office building and I couldn't talk. So, yes. Okay. Okay. So, you've, maybe you've heard the story about Bono then. That when the U2 was looking for a lead singer, um, people came in. Some people were really good, but Bono was the only one who came in in a leather jacket and studs and boots and had the attitude. The singing sucked. The, the guy said it, Bono even said it, but he had the attitude. And that attitude was the reason that they got him into it. And he became Bono, you know? Mm -hmm. um, believe that you can win. Believe that if you're not gonna win, you're gonna at least finish. Believe that if you're not gonna finish, at least you're gonna know that this part of the journey that I've taken, I can do that and I can do better next time. And know that there will be a next time. Sun always rises tomorrow. You know, you always have another chance. Um, and if you don't, then you don't have to worry about it, you know? Right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, keep trying, you know, what was that Edison didn't learn how to make the light bulb after a few thousand times, but that one time he did it, that's the one that, that mattered. And it wasn't that he was upset that he didn't do it for 2000 attempts. He just learned 2000 ways not to make the light bulb. Right, right. No, that, and that's a great point. The, the ways that it isn't done. And, and that's a struggle sometimes too, when you're in a situation, I, I, I'm not a landlord, fortunately, but, but with student grades where you... Uh, receive this frantic email at midnight um, and, and someone's got a problem and you want to make sure that there is a lesson for them, but you don't want to penalize them. And God forbid, uh, I, I'm the, the last straw, common, common discussion nowadays with mental health is, of course, suicide. And that idea that you won't be able to wake up tomorrow if you exercise that final option and you don't say, wow, as long as I've got breath, I can keep pushing through. And I will find a solution. If I have to save three pennies a day, then that's how much I can save. But I will eventually have uh, enough for a meal. Uh, but if I'm dead, then there are no worries. And so trying to, to balance um, those, the struggles and, and the importance for me at least, uh, and, and again, I don't know how this works in, in your field, uh, in, in your life experience, communication, that effective communication where I remind my students, if you tell me early, if we communicate early, we can actually come up with a plan for your success. If you tell me at the last minute when the registrar is telling me for grades, now I'm in a bind because I also have external deadlines. You definitely want to work with people because people will work with you. You know, if you, like you said, if you know that this, uh, you can't do X within Y amount of time, let someone know, um, you know, at three times Y that, you know, before you, you get to that, that, that cutoff date. Um, everybody's human, everybody's had problems, you know, we've tripped over our own shoelaces. Uh, we've climbed that metaphorical mountain. I keep going back to that same metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
you know, we, 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 we've, we've accomplished our goals and we've struggled in, in that accomplishment. And we understand, at, at least I do, you know, as, as you get older, more experienced, that just about everybody goes through a similar pattern of growth. Um, and part of that growth is failure. And it's not a bad thing. Um, people will help you. People will, you know, they'll, they'll lend you a hand. They may even lend you a dollar. Um, don't expect them to give it to you every day. You know, they're not your parents. They're not going to spoon feed you. But ultimately, we're a social species. We like other people around us. We like to see these people happy around us. And we'll do what we can within reason to help each other out. And so, like you said, you know, asking the teacher or, you know, professor to, uh, to have a consideration to suggest ways that, uh, you know, maybe this particular book is not explaining it, but this other book, which isn't in a syllabus might, you know, I'm sure you could, you've led people down uh, other pathways to get to the same answer. Um, the world is like that. You, um, you might see like a TikTok video or something like there are people saying like, how do you grow your confidence? Well, go to the coffee shop and ask for 10% off. And they'll tell you no, but you've asked. And once you've asked once, it gets easier to ask a second time. And it gets easier to like, uh, you know, to go up and ask that particular person who looks very attractive to you out. Um, you get turned down, whatever. But eventually you won't get turned down. Then you have to figure out how to keep them occupied in the first date. But it's, it's a steady growth of, uh, of learning, of accepting that other people are learning and accepting that other people can and will help you if you ask for it. I, I think that a lot of people will get stuck in this mindset that it's only them, that it's, it's, it's me against the world and the world is crashing down on me, I have no escape. Um, but there's, I don't know, you, you, you don't have to, to, to collapse like that. You don't have to fall, fall under the weight of the world. Um, sometimes you can just kind of sidestep it, let it smash next to you. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I appreciate a lot of the discussions that we've had in our educational policy and our technological infrastructure. We, we should have been having a long time ago and some of us in the business world were, uh, but we're being ignored by the boomers <laughs> that we work for. And, and so I, I have highlighted for a number of my students where I've created these outings. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily tripping over my shoelaces as much as just tripping on my way out of the whatever brewery I'm at, but I, I will try to create these social environments where my students are able to engage in person if they want, or at least in a sense of community because we're social creatures and because we have that reliance. Have there been situations where there's someone you needed something from that you just didn't like, but you worked around it, or you found a way, something to like about them? Are there situations where you said, I really don't want to be here, and then you've developed uh, certain practices, breathing techniques, or whatever to um, thrive in that environment? I've, uh, I've definitely had people I didn't like, but it was only because of my limited understanding of their goals and reasoning. I think that ultimately everybody is trying to do right, but it's what they consider right or what seems right from their particular angle. You know, we're all in different spots looking in different directions. And so we don't always see the same thing, even though we're looking at the same object. You know, this, this bottle of water, maybe you can read the label, but I can't, you know, just from positioning. And uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> no, just some of the practices that you develop 
to work with those people or to, to thrive in that environment regardless of your own animosity or, or stress? I, I guess I've, I've slowly learned to try and look at it from their point of view in the sense of like, uh, person X is very angry about all this. Why is person X angry about that? How would I feel if I had to deal with those very same things? Um, and it's not always easy to do because it's, it's sometimes it's more fun to just be pissed off. You know, it's more fun to call them names and, uh, and think that everybody else is always wrong, but it's not always the case. And it's not always going to help you to achieve your goals or grow as a person. Um, as, as I said, we're social, but we're also compromising species. You know, we, we all uh, scoot over a little bit so somebody else can sit on the chair for the most part. Um, yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think of various scenarios that have helped me sort of try to walk a mile in someone else's shoes or to understand my own vulnerability, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, of course, in my, in my life, I've run five elections for city council and no one will oppose me. The mayor will have two opponents. The other council member running on my same uh, cycle will have one or two opponents and I will have no opponents. And I think, I don't need anybody. I will do this my own way. And then you see a science fiction movie like Blade and you say, why do you need familiars? Because at some point the sun comes out and you need someone to do things in the light. You need someone to watch your coffin or whatever while you rest. And, and that interdependency uh, recognition, and of course you find it in Stephen R. Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you find it in Good to Great, where leadership lessons, management lessons, and interpersonal lessons have some unifying themes that you find across any of these areas where you want to excel, particularly as related to vulnerability and interdependency that that back to your point that we are social creatures and how do we get that done? So I do think it's important for us to step back and try to empathize, try to understand where someone is coming from, what stressors may exist um, that have placed them in that. And then sometimes what can we do to alleviate some of those pressures, particularly in negotiations saying, I think this person is cranky because their blood sugar is low I'm going to bring a Snickers while I ask for what I need from this individual. Or realize that maybe your crankiness is because of your blood sugar and, you know, have two Snickers. Right. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that introspective yet. I'm, I'm you know, usually it's the other person's baby steps. Yeah. Back, right. <laughs> Let me help them be a better person because I'm already perfect. <laughs> but that's, 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 that's fascinating. And as we look at some of how um, these understandings of vulnerability have, have, have increased, these understandings of technology. Um, as you look at your profession in particular and your work environment, what are some of the areas of technology that you think need to change or, or that people should be looking at to study in the future to move that industry to the next stage where people could be at the cutting edge of innovation? And what are some areas where you think people are gonna be people and even though this technology or tool exists, they're not ready for it. So I've, I've pretty much grown up around computers. Um, the first one appeared in our house, possibly when I was like 10 or 11 years old, which in the eighties was, you know, pretty, pretty young. Uh, although now kids grow up with like these in our hand and right. it's a totally different world. Um, but this in your hand that I'm holding a cell phone here, um, you know, it, it's, it's very mousy pointy clicky. It's a term that I've heard before where you scroll here, you do this, that, and you understand 
how to you know, use uh, Siri or Alexa to, to answer a question, how to Google search something. But then there's another level underneath that, which is how to create your own Alexa or Siri or Google. Or then there's the other layer underneath that is how to create the, uh, the circuitry within these devices. Um, you know, the meteor crashes and all we're left with are these things. I don't know that all of us would be able to, or that any of us really would be able to, to recreate that technology. We, you know, we're, we're built on the shoulders of, you know, our past uh, giants. Um, what I feel is that we should look beyond just the surface OS. We should look beyond uh, knowing how to click the mouse to open up the, the word pad or whatever to, to write the letter. Um, and we should learn, you know, not only, you know, the technology of, of development, I think everybody should take a, a coding class to get the idea behind it, but also like a hardware class to learn how to create uh, circuit boards. They should take a class in just general logic and, uh, you know, to be able to, I guess, I don't know, I'm sure you've heard of it, that people have built computers out of like a pigeons or crabs that just will act a certain way based on other ways and you get an ultimate answer out of it. It's like a, a big, uh, was that Turing machine or something? Mm. Or, or a difference engine? Um, you, you need to diversify. Uh, the, the answer is not in you know a particular software suite. It's in the ability to understand software in general or, or to the ability to understand what this software is doing for you as a person, you know, uh, it's not it's not writing the paper for you. It's teaching you. It's giving you the ability to write the paper. You still have to learn how to write the paper. You still have to know sentences. You have to know grammatic. Uh, right. Say, yeah, <laughs> which I obviously don't. <laughs> yeah, and and that diversity uh, of understanding how things work, I do believe, adds value on a number of levels. Not only in the technical or professional. Uh, sort of sphere, but also in that management, as you understand how people get jobs done. And I've had this debate before with people um, as to whether if you're choosing, for example, uh, to hire a nursing supervisor, if it makes more sense to hire an MBA or a nurse and the challenges of that. Of course, psychology is everybody's, everybody's different, but underlying that nurse uh, with the years of experience that you might look at to be a supervisor could also be a bias or presumption about how things should get done. You should have all of your scalpels in this drawer. And so then you've reduced the autonomy and excellence of your staff because you as an expert nurse know how you best do this versus a business person coming in with an MBA saying, I don't actually know how to perform this surgery, but I do know that the research shows this. And I also know that each of the, they're gonna be outliers. And so if, having the scalpels in the store does not work for you. And you can demonstrate that you can perform this task in the 30 seconds um, that I need it to be done to make, to monetize it, we're good. That's a very open-minded manager that I don't always, or have always <laughs> seen in my life. Um, and, and fortunately, a lot of people get caught up on the idea of being the manager, of having that power to say, this is what's gonna happen and watching people make it happen. Um, there, there has to be a balance in that to be effective in, in a positive way, I feel. Yeah, and, and, and when we look at some of those uh, sort of non-traditional measurements, right? So we oftentimes look at for success degrees or we look at uh, economic generation. So you, oh, you have, a, you have a Ferrari, then you are successful. 
And one of the facts that I cite for my students to encourage them to appreciate their diversity, to appreciate their identities is the, the continuously reaffirmed fact that boards with at least one woman uh, on them perform better during periods of economic downturn. So this has been reaffirmed and, and reaffirmed through several economic crises where having a voice of, that's different actually added value. And on a factor that maybe people weren't looking at, maybe you were looking at the person with the best tie mm -hmm. or again, the uh, fanciest degree or, or additional licensure in reality, it was just this one variable of perception, uh, a differing underlying uh, idea or, or view of the world that help these companies perform better than those with homogeneous boards. And so I, I wonder, what do you think about that diversity and what how that different skill set comes into play or different identities can come into play to create a healthier work environment uh, with some autonomy for management? Yeah, no, I definitely feel that um, different people can contribute different ways and they have to. Um, a jigsaw puzzle isn't all one shape. It's a bunch of shapes to work together to create the whole. And that's any business. Um, the management team should consider that. Uh, they may have good ideas. They may have learned the right way to do it in school. And I don't know if you people can see the air quotes. But, <laughs> um, but uh, the nurse with the experience may be able to tell you that it's good to have all the scalpels in this drawer, but not the dirty ones. And the management person, you know, might not have considered that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a combination of the two. You know, if you can find uh, the MBA who was also a nurse for a year or two, even just to get their feet wet, you know, to, to have that taste of experience, a taste of the real world, so to speak, uh, that'll definitely come into play. Uh, I think that when I'm looking for people to, to hire, you know, uh, myself having just you know, recently come into a management position. Uh, I'm looking for people that do have a broad variety of experience to are able to not necessarily know off the top of their heads how to do this task, but they know how to find out how to do a task. You know, they'll, they'll know what resources to search, what uh, databases uh, to query. Or that you know, maybe the answer isn't even in the database, you know, maybe the answer is that you have to create it yourself. Hmm. So maybe a sense of curiosity is something that you would look for with employees. Definitely so. Sense of curiosity, a sense of, and, and I don't, you don't want someone who's always going off into the deep end, but someone who's not afraid to go off into the deep end if they need to. Um, you know, sometimes you stay in your lane, but sometimes you have to get into the gravel to get out of the way of the obstruction in the road. You know? how I don't know that any K through 12 or, or college experience that I've been through actually teaches you that more than, um, you know, going camping will teach you that because, oh no, I forgot my tent spikes. Well, let's carve out some spikes from wood and it, you know, it'll work. Or now if you don't even have spikes for the wood, you could use your water bottles to hold down your tent. Here's, Abstract thinking, I believe, is, uh, is a key element in, in all sorts of life. That makes sense. And, and again, some, for some things, I always say it depends, context is key, because for some of those uh, practices, such as the pre-flight checklist, 
you want to do it in that order. Yes, yes, of course, of course. If you're like operating on someone's heart, uh, you definitely want to give them the anesthesia before you start cutting. You know, there's, there's the order of the operations. operations can... Exactly. <laughs> the order of operations is very important. Um, yeah. Although, although sometimes you have to know when to, uh, to abandon that. And you may be wrong and you may lose that patient. And that's, that's hard to deal with. I mean, I personally haven't killed anyone, but uh, I have royally messed up, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's devastating, you know, you, you have this vision of yourself in being the perfect politician, the perfect teacher, the perfect uh, validation specialist. And when you realize that you're not, you can fall down the hole of, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. Or you can use it as a stepping stone saying, well, maybe I did step into the pond, but this experience is now a stone that I can use to reach my destination safely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's learning from your mistakes. It's growing with, uh, with your experience. Carol Dweck has a book, Mindset, and she sp- talks about that growth mindset and, and the idea of sort of how you perceive of things. Do you perceive of them as failures or do you perceive of them as lessons? Do you see them as challenges or as opportunities? And so being able to shift your paradigm um, and really adjust your perspective sounds like something that would be of, of benefit for people moving forward in not only their careers, but also their personal lives. I, I believe so, yeah. And it's not something that, you know, I personally, you know, just woke up with a new, you know, it's, it's, it's evolving daily for sure. Um, five years ago, you would have got a different answer. Five years before that, you know, I probably wouldn't even have the interview, you know? Um, so yeah, like, like I said earlier, you have to never stop learning. You have to never stop reaching for goals. I, Fresh water is moving water. Stagnant water is, uh, you know, full of bacteria and whatnot. algae, and yeah, yeah. It, it stinks. You don't want to stink. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that is uh, <laughs> true <laughs> wisdom. You don't want to stink. So, Thomas Sorbino, I appreciate your time today. Is is there any any final tidbit of wisdom or advice? Uh, the winning lottery numbers that you'd like to share? Seven, fourteen, twenty-six, nine, thirty-four. Powerball of. 21. All right. All right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Thomas. and, And we appreciate your time today. All right. Thank you.